All right, well, we come tonight in our study of this book to perhaps one of the most anticipated and pivotal chapters of John's prophecy. If you've ever studied uh, this topic even of eschatology, no doubt you, you would have heard how important Revelation chapter 20 is. And if you haven't, then um, listen anyway and just take our word for it. But Revelation 20, in this chapter, I mean, you, you have both a description of what some would call the millennial kingdom, maybe you've heard of that before, and also what many have deemed the great white throne judgment. Massive sections in these verses in this one chapter, and so needless to say, I'm not going to cover both of those, I'm not going to cover all of it tonight, we'll, uh, we'll break the pattern, at least the majority pattern that we've tried to establish one chapter um, each Wednesday, and we'll split this up into, Lord willing, just two. Our goal this evening is to cover then just the, the first ten verses So, Revelation 20, verses 1 through 10, regarding the millennial kingdom, which is challenging enough as it is, right? Uh, Especially if, as I said, you sought to study eschatology before, then maybe you've heard of these terms before, pre-millennial, amillennial, can anyone finish it? Post-millennial, right? Yes, uh, if you've studied eschatology at all, you've probably heard these terms thrown around, whether you know what they mean or not. These are all, just to give you a context, even for the significance of this chapter and these 10 verses, these are, these are all referring to differing views and interpretations, really, of what we find here in the first 10 verses. And so we're going to clear all of that up for you tonight. <laughs> No, actually, uh, full, full disclosure, my goal in this next hour is not, I repeat, not to deal specifically even with all of the arguments that come up in the differences between those views, or to answer all of your questions really about the millennium. For that, I will refer you to a book, if you're taking notes, by one of my Exposer Seminary professors, Matt Waymeyer. It's a little volume, and it's, it's not that intimidating. It's called Revelation 20 and the Millennial Debate. Super helpful. He will, do, he will scratch that itch for you in a better way than I can. So I commend that volume to you. But my goal tonight is rather to simply help you understand how to interpret Revelation 20 in the flow and in the context of John's vision that is given to him. And hopefully, that will then equip you to discern better the strengths and weaknesses of each view out there on the millennial kingdom, okay? Granted, we do uh, have a position here at TCBC. Full disclosure, again, we are pre-millennial in our eschatology here, in case you didn't know that. And hopefully, though, that, that will come out clearly as we move through the text, but hopefully it will come out from the text and not from our doctrinal statement on the website. So let's begin by asking this question then. How do we understand Revelation 20 in light of where we've been? 
Now, I can't review all 19 chapters, but I can at least reach back one chapter. If you remember, Danny covered last time, and the last two times, actually, we've been in Revelation. Revelation chapter 19 is also a massive chapter, a chapter describing that long-awaited return, the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ to make all things right. You remember? I believe Revelation 20 here is on the heels of that then, helping us to answer the question as Christians who live in a fallen world, when will God fully and finally deal with all evil? And you might be asking, well, I thought he did that in Revelation 19. You know, after the return of Christ, in that chapter, after his victory at the battle of Armageddon over the beast, you remember the false prophet and the army of God-hating earth dwellers, after all those judgments and all those chapters that have been poured out upon the earth by now, seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, we might be tempted after chapter 19 to imagine that there's, there's now nothing left to be done concerning evil. Right? All is dealt with. Christ is returned. He's come back. He's defeated Satan's armies, the battle of Armageddon. But if you've been paying attention throughout John's vision, you'd quickly realize that at this point in the book then, there's still one massive elephant left in the room, right? Or should we say dragon? Satan has yet to be dealt with. Satan the dragon, the one who has been behind every Antichrist from the very beginning, still needs to be done away with and handled by God. And so Revelation 20 is actually where we find God dealing, I would say, fully and finally with evil, beginning first with the evil one, verses 1 through 10, And then with every evil deed, verses 11 through 15. And again, like I said tonight, we'll only get to cover God's final dealing with Satan, which which, which actually is the backdrop of this vision that John receives of the millennial kingdom that is so hotly debated. You see, I don't believe John gives us this chapter so that we can debate about it. So that we have heated theological arguments about pre or ah or post. His whole point in this vision, in this prophecy is to encourage Christians who have been persecuted. John himself, as he's writing, has been exiled on the island of Patmos for the testimony of Christ. And he is now writing to tell us specifically that Satan does not win in the end. Do you need to hear this this evening? I think we all do. But here's your, here's your outline for tonight, and it's not super fancy. I didn't work too hard on it. <laughs> uh, just three sections. The, 
as we just that give you some hooks to hang your thoughts on or buckets to put some information in. Uh, we'll, we'll see the beginning of the millennium, verses 1 through 3. We'll see the reign of the millennium, verses 4 through 6. And then the end of the millennium, 7 through 10. So again, not, not very creative, re- really simple, but hopefully that'll help you as you uh, just think about how this section unfolds. So let's begin at the beginning of the millennium, verses 1 through 3, and see if we can make sense of John's vision. Notice, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 20, John writes next, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the key of the abyss and a great chain in his hand. And he laid hold of the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss and shut it and sealed it over him, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer, until the thousand years were completed. After these things, he must be released for a short time. Now, here in the beginning of the millennium, here, as with all the other instances, notice in verse 1 of the familiar words of transition, then I saw, that's exactly how John begins this section as well. John begins now to describe what happens next in the chronology of events given to him in this vision. And by the way, for what it's worth, I don't think there's a good reason for us in this context to take it any differently than all the other instances of this then I saw in the book of Revelation. This next vision is chronological in the flow of what John sees and the unfolding of the future events. And, and notice what he sees next then immediately following Christ's bloody victory at Armageddon is an angel, another common sight in the book of Revelation, but an angel who is now dispatched from heaven, much like what we've already seen in chapter 10, verse 1, chapter 18, verse 1. This unnamed angel, John says, he sees, like the others in the book of Revelation, is on a very specific mission. Notice, his assignment from heaven has something to do with what he's holding in his hands. John sees this angel coming down from heaven with two specific objects in his hands for the accomplishment of the very task that it was given. Notice first, this angel is holding the key of the abyss. Now, we've, we've seen this key before. If you've been with us throughout this study, we saw it back in chapter 9 in the 5th trumpet judgment, to remind you, where John saw what was likely a fallen angel who was given what he described there as the same key of the bottomless pit, chapter 9, verse 1. Literally, it's referred to there as the key to the shaft of the abyss, which is that key there is used then by that fallen angel in the fifth trumpet judgment, if you remember, to free a host of terrifyingly Uh, terrifying-looking demon locusts that 
torment those upon the earth in the time of the tribulation. You remember that? Maybe you tried to forget that image in your mind. (laughs) But that's the same key here. You you may remember in that context also that we, we noted that the abyss, that word, that reference in Scripture is... It's, it's always the place where God seems to have reserved for the incar- incarceration of particularly wicked and perverse angels like those in Noah's day in First Peter 3.19. It was a place that was clearly well known by the demonic hosts because the legion of demons... Remember the interaction between the legion of demons and Jesus in Luke 8, verse 31? They beg Christ, remember, not to send them there, but rather to send them in the pigs. And, and so for what, what we can piece together about the abyss throughout Scripture is that it's not so much, it's not so much a place of torment since even in our context here, it is distinct from the lake of fire, which we'll see in a few moments. But rather, it's, it's a place of confinement for spiritual beings. In, in other words, in previous sermons, you may have remembered, we, we, we deemed it an Alcatraz for angels, right? You remember? Uh, what is Alcatraz? That prison on an island that's impossible to, so to speak, Escape. This is what the abyss is for angelic beings. And John sees this angel with the key to this place of confinement. That's object number one. But notice second object that John records this angel also has in his, presumably his other hand. It's a great chain. A great chain. Now, chains in the New Testament are often a reference to the the bonds of imprisonment, right? We've read enough of Paul's letters to remember that Paul speaks of his chains in this way. In 2 Timothy 1.16, the word is literally used to speak of the chains that and the shackles that bound Peter in Acts 12 that miraculously fall off of him after he's arrested by Herod. But, but what's interesting, it's the, uh, the only other use of chains and reference to chains in the New Testament is found actually in the account in Mark 5 and Luke 8, where uh, we encounter the Gerasene demoniac, that legion of demons. The gospel record for us there that many attempts were made to restrain that this one demon possessed with chains and shackles, but he would break them into pieces, and Mark adds that no one was strong enough to subdue him. That is the point of chains. That is until Jesus comes along, no one is strong enough to subdue him. So, so clearly, the common purpose of chains is for restraining, it's for binding, it's for imprisoning. And the same is true here than in this text. In fact, Notice verses 2 and 3 then. Verses 2 and 3 make it crystal clear as to why this angel is holding these two objects. Look at what he does. John watches as this angel 
proceeds in the next two verses to both bind Satan with the great chain and then to lock him in the abyss with this key. That's what John sees. That is the mission given, the task given to this angel, and he does it rather handily. Did you notice? It's interesting. There's, there's the force and the speed of how all of this happens in just two short verses is, is a little bit shocking, isn't it? After all that we know about Satan, just notice the verbs here, one after another, and he laid hold of the dragon, and he threw him into the abyss, and shut it, and sealed it over him. Done. The progression here is that he overpowered, then bound, then threw, and then locked. It is forceful, and it is fast. Beloved, just like that, listen. Satan's dominion over this world comes to an end in two verses. There's no debate. There's no power struggle. There's no heavenly standoff. There's no running. There's no hiding. There's no evading arrest. Satan's time has come, and he knows it as much as he hates it. In fact, earlier in the context and unfolding of chapter 12 of Revelation, maybe you remember this, we read there that Satan was thrown out of heaven and confined to earth to make war on God's children. And verse 12 reads, having great wrath, and listen to this, knowing that he has only a short time, referring to the period of the tribulation, Satan knew full well that his time was up. Satan is subservient to God. Christian, isn't that encouraging? In the world that we live in, in the world that John wrote in, how much do we need to be reminded of this? And just as he was thrown from heaven down to earth, now he is here thrown from earth down into the abyss. And listen, and this is a fascinating play on words in the context, right? The one who has been putting God's people in prison for centuries. Revelation 2 verse 10, just to give you one instance of that, is now for the first time imprisoned himself the one who's been binding and possessing helpless unbelievers for ages, Luke 13, 16, is for the first time here himself bound and cast into the abyss. Beloved, what a reversal. What, 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 what a turn of events. Dear Christian, consider this and be encouraged tonight that even though, according to 1 Peter 5, 8, Satan currently, you know, is... He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There is coming a day. There is coming a day when all of his activity will cease. His jurisdiction will run out. His parole will expire. And God will bring him in. And his influence will be entirely erased from the earth. Can you imagine that day? 
Now, now in, case, in case we weren't clear, the dragon here is indeed referring to the same Satan that lurks behind every evil perpetrated against God throughout redemptive history. Notice how John makes it unmistakable in the language here. Language, that, by the way, uh, that we've already seen almost verbatim back in chapter 12, verse 9. The serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan. The serpent of old identifies this dragon as the same deceitful creature that showed up in the garden in Genesis 3. The same one whose lies led to the fall of man and introduced sin into the world, you remember. And here he's also called the devil, which just means slanderer, someone who maliciously spreads lies. John calls him Satan, which means adversary or enemy because he's always been opposed to God and to his people. No, it's interesting, too, if you think, if you chase this figure around the Bible, our same author, John, writes in 1 John 5.19 that the whole world lies under Satan's influence. And then when you put that together with Revelation 12.9, in addition to all three of these titles given to the dragon, There, John adds a description of Satan as one who deceives the whole world. And that, beloved, is explicitly the influence that Satan has on a global scale. He deceives. He's a deceiver. He spawns false ideologies. That is how he works. Look, he's not omnipresent, right? He's not God. He can't indwell. He can't possess multiple people. He can only be in one place at one time, and he is roaming the nations, deceiving. That is his greatest tactic and the way he influences the world. But notice, on this day, I love this, in John's vision, John sees the abrupt, angelic end to Satan's dominion of deception. Notice the explicit purpose clause here after Satan's arrest to the abyss, so that he would not deceive the nations any longer. The purpose here is the complete removal and cessation of all of Satan's influence and activity on the earth. The threefold language here of not just binding, but binding, and then shutting or closing, a verb of solitary confinement, and then sealing is very difficult to get around. Here, this is referring to a complete removal and isolation of Satan so that he cannot influence the world any longer. And notice the duration of this lockdown of Satan twice in this text and five times in this chapter. This period is referred to as a thousand years. And finally, we get to the millennial, right? The millennium, right? A thousand years. That's how long Satan is held captive in this abyss, bound and incapable of spreading lies or influencing anything or anyone 
explicitly here, John tells us in verse 2, for the first time, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. And again, he repeats this duration of time, verse 3, until the thousand years are completed, after which he must be released for a short time. And it's from this language and this number taken literally and specifically as a reference to an actual 1,000-year time period that we are first introduced to what we believe is called the millennial kingdom or the millennial reign of Christ on earth. And we do believe this to be the most natural reading of this prophecy, that John is not seeing a recapitulation or just a summary of the whole of the church age here in these 1,000 years because Satan is very much free to roam and deceive now in the church age. In other words, you, you would have to argue that Satan is somehow bound and incarcerated in the abyss right now in order to make that other view make sense. But rather, the most natural reading here is that John sees in this vision a literal 1,000-year period immediately, remember, following the tribulation in which Satan is completely out of commission. He's out of the picture. He's locked away in an abyss, unable to do any kind of deceiving. After which, verse 3 reminds us it's necessary for him to be released again for a short time. And we'll talk about that more Let me get to verses 7 through 10. But for now, we can simply note that John writes all of this as if all these events are planned and orchestrated to unfold in a very specific sequence that is intentionally designed to fulfill God's purposes. Did you notice how three times at verse, once in verse 3, once in verse 5, once in verse 7, the way John speaks of the duration of 1,000 years is, it, is as though it's something that must be completed and must be fulfilled. Every year of it. In other words, it's hard to take this interpretively as just some amorphous symbolic period of time. The language is very precise. This exact number of years must be completed after which Satan must be released again for a short time. But again, for now, beloved, can you, can you just imagine, like all those debates aside, right, could you just imagine what that kind of a season would be like without satanic activity whatsoever on the earth? Think about that. A time in which all of Satan's demonic influence and deception will be removed from culture and society and public schools, <laughs> It's hard to fathom, isn't it? No one to blind the minds of the unbelieving, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. No one to enter the hearts of unbelievers to perpetrate evil as Satan did to Judas, Luke 22, verse 3. No one to attack God's messengers as Satan did with Paul, 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, in his thorn in the flesh. No one to snatch the gospel's seed from the hardened soil of men's hearts, Matthew 13. No one to spin lies on a global level. No one to develop false ideologies and give fuel to false religions, John 8, 44. No one to entice Christians away from the purity and simplicity of the gospel as Satan did to Eve, 2 Corinthians 11. No one 
to fire-burning arrows of temptation at us. Ephesians 6. Can you imagine? What would the world look like? This is how the millennium is introduced. And John actually gives us some more information than about what that thousand-year reign will look like. We move to our second section then, verses 4 through 6, the reign of the millennium. And notice, as soon as Satan is off the scene... John records, then I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was given to them, and I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus, and because of the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand, and they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." And the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death is no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, almost immediately in verse 4, as soon as Satan is removed, what John sees next in the progression of things, is a massive, we could say, exchange of power or dominion upon the earth. There have been no exchanges of power quite like this one. With the ruler of this world exiled to the abyss, notice the very next thing that catches John's eye is thrones. Thrones. And those who sat upon them to whom judgment was given. Man, a seismic shift of dominion and power, but immediately we're struck. Listen, if you're anything like me, we're struck by the fact that John's focus here, did you catch it, is not first upon Christ as the reigning king. It's really interesting to me, right? Who, who, who certainly is now sitting on the throne of David, having Satan removed as the God of this world. That, to see Christ, that would have been how I would have written it, right? That would have been how you and I would have written this text. As Satan has been dethroned, now Jesus is on the throne. That's not what he sees. How interesting is it here that rather than focusing on Christ's rule and reign in this section on the millennial kingdom, John's vision is drawn instead towards those individuals who reign with Christ in that kingdom. Isn't that fascinating? Why would he do that? Look, no doubt Jesus is king in this season, in this thousand years, he's the one who's ultimately reigning and on the throne during this time. That much is clear from verse 4. But, but, he, but even there, Christ is simply mentioned in a prepositional phrase that happens to be describing the activity of those who've come to life in the first resurrection. So why does John tell it this way? 
You have to ask these questions of these kinds of passages, right? We can't just assume we know what's going on. Why does John tell it this way? I mean, is he detracting from Christ's glory in the millennial kingdom? I don't think so. Listen, let me remind you. John is writing this book of Revelation from prison on the island of Patmos to encourage a persecuted and suffering church. And hear how encouraging it would have been for those Christians to read that one day, listen, beloved, one day, you too, after all that the world can do to you, after all that Satan can in this fallen existence put you through, none of it, John says, will be able to keep you from reigning and ruling with Christ. You will be victorious in the end. In the end, the saints are triumphant. They sit on thrones. You're going to sit there. This is not the only place in Scripture that refers to Christians reigning with Christ someday in his millennial kingdom. In fact, I believe this is, this is exactly what Daniel sees in Daniel 7. You know, we visited Daniel's prophecy over and over again in the book of Revelation because so much is drawn from there. But you can just write it down again. Daniel 7, and just listen, verses 21 and 22. Daniel says, I kept looking, similar language, and that horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient of days came. And judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. Listen to this language. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. The focus that John has here is that, Christian, if you're in Christ, that kingdom belongs to you. Later in Daniel 7, verse 27, Daniel records that after the Antichrist's dominion is taken away, then the sovereignty, the dominion, and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given, and we would expect, to the ancient of days. No, but it says, to the people of the saints. It's incredible. You know, you're going to sit on a throne someday. You will reign. Matthew 19, verse 28, you remember Jesus also promised his disciples this, truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. I'll give you another cross-reference, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. You remember the Corinthians were disputing, taking each other even to court over petty offenses before unbelievers. And Paul rebukes them there by asking them, look, do you, know, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? You should be able to handle these little squabbles be- between yourselves now, right? And then very simply, perhaps the simplest statement about this comes in 2 Timothy 2. Verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Beloved, you will be there. You might say, how, how do I apply this passage of the millennial kingdom? You're going to be there. It's so encouraging. We, we, we also find reference to this promise of reigning with Christ earlier in this book of Revelation. Uh, again, you can write down uh, chapter 2. 
verses 26 and 27 to the persecuted church in Thyatira, Jesus says specifically, hey, he who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Isn't that interesting language there? Do you think of, do you think of heaven in that way? Being with Christ is having authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with the rod of iron. You're saying Jesus will do that? He's talking about the saints. Of course, Jesus will do that, but so will you. Revelation 3, verse 21, to Laodicea, Jesus says, he who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. I believe verse 4 here is speaking of that very reality. Now, to be sure and to be fair, there's some difficulty and debate here in verse 4 over who the pronoun they actually refers to. I don't know if you noticed, uh, it doesn't actually say. In other words, the, the, the text here is not entirely clear who the antecedent of they is. Uh, some think that though these These are those whom John will go on in the rest of verse 4 to identify as those who had been beheaded, who had not worshipped the beast or his image. The problem with that view is that the group here is, at least the group later on in verse 4 is the souls of those who'd been beheaded and they don't actually get their glorified resurrected bodies until the end of verse 4, so they can't be the ones in the beginning of verse 4 that John sees already seated on earthly thrones judging in the millennial kingdom, right? Does that make sense? Uh, So I think it's best to see this first group as the hosts of the saints who return with Christ at his second coming and are part of his heavenly army back in chapter 19. After all, it was quite customary for those who conquered in battle to be rewarded with positions of authority. Which means that John also then sees a separate group of people here in the rest of verse 4 who are brought back to life before his eyes in what he calls now the first resurrection. And that group of people is distinct from those who've already been given thrones and judgment in the millennial kingdom. So so hopefully you're following me now. Notice how John describes this then second unique group of martyrs. They are those, as we've already said, they are the souls of those who had been beheaded because of their testimony of Jesus and because of the word of God. In other words, these are the souls of those who were targeted and executed in this life for the very same reasons why John himself was exiled to Patmos. The reasons for their death are not a mystery here. They didn't die from natural disasters or old age or disease or even the harsh conditions that resulted from the plagues during the tribulation. No, these are those who were singled out for their faith in Christ during the great tribulation and were put under the greatest test that you and I could face as Christians. They were murdered under the ministry of the Antichrist 
Because notice, they had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received the mark on their forehead and on their hand. Revelation 13, 15 already told us that whoever did not receive the, or whoever did not worship the image of the beast would be killed. I believe that this is the remnant of those in the great tribulation that John now sees who withstood the full earthly wrath of the Antichrist, who were caught, threatened, shamed, and tortured for refusing to bow the knee. And in the end, they were faithful, and their head was separated from their bodies. And notice, John now watches as they came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Man, (laughs) what will the, the millennial kingdom be like? Think about this. Not only will Christ rule as rightful king from Jerusalem on the throne of David as the scriptures promise, but during the millennial kingdom, this passage seems to indicate to us that he will also delegate his rule and his power and his authority and his judgment over all the earth to all of his people, specifically two groups of people people, to those who will appear with him in glory, Colossians 3 verse 4, at his second coming, and to those tribulation saints who will be raised in the first resurrection, verse 5 here. That's what the millennial kingdom will be like. Those people will be in office. (laughs) It's amazing to think about. Why, why does John, call, John here call this the first resurrection? Well, because he clarifies for us, notice in the beginning of verse 5, that there is another resurrection to come of a different group of people at the end of this thousand years. Notice he says the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. It's pretty, pretty clear. we'll, We'll study this second resurrection next time in verses 11 through 15. But for now, it's perhaps enough to know that there is clearly a contrast here being made between those who are raised to life here in verse 4 to reign with Christ and the rest of the dead in verse 5 that we just read about who are later raised in Verse 12, to face the great white throne judgment. Two different resurrections. By the way, the last time the words the rest, do you notice, were were used in this context was back in chapter 19, verse 21. Just look back at it real quick. Who's that referring to? And the rest were killed with the sword, which came from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. And then in chapter 20, verse 12, the rest of the dead. It's that group. But as for those who are raised here in the first resurrection, notice, John adds a final comment here about their blessed condition and role in the millennial kingdom in verse 6. Just to close out this section Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. 
Over these, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. And that must have been so encouraging for John's audience to read. Notice two new things are added here after John pronounces this group blessed and holy. First, this group is said to not be under the power or authority of the second death. You see that? If, 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 if we fast forward, what is the second death? If we fast forward to the end of verse 14, notice John helps us by identifying the second death as the lake of fire into which the beast and the false prophet have already been thrown and Satan will then be thrown and also all of those whose name was not found written in the book of life are thrown there where according to verse 10, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So what is the second death? The second death, put it simply, is eternal punishment in hell. The lake of fire. And John declares here that those who reign with Christ in his millennial kingdom will not face that. They'll not be subject to the second death, to eternal punishment in hell. What an encouragement. And not only that, secondly, John further describes, notice this group as not just those who won't be subject to the second death, but also those, he describes them as priests of God and of Christ, confirming to us then what was implied earlier in the passage that these saints will serve God, they will minister on his behalf to the rest of the world in the millennial kingdom. One commentator summarizes the roles here then, This way, priesthood and royalty are dual aspects of their future service to God. Listen, Christian, that is what you'll be doing for a thousand years with Christ. This is a fulfillment of the promise given back in Revelation 5 verse 10 You have made them to be a kingdom of priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. They will. You will, if you're in Christ. So let's back out again. This is the millennial reign. This is what it looks like. No no satanic activity. Can, Can you imagine what the world will look like when every official person in a position of authority in Christ's earthly kingdom is glorified and a resurrected saint. I mean, that just blows your mind, doesn't it? What kind of government will that be like? And not to mention, Christ is at the helm. Here, John is shown a vision of this glorious long-promised earthly kingdom of Christ and his focus in order to encourage the suffering saints in this life is on our role in it someday. Beloved, if you are in Christ, one day you will reign with him. You will be given a job in the glorious millennial kingdom and you will govern and judge and rule over all the nations under Christ with direct 
priestly access to your king and without fear of Satan's corruption. Let me ask you, with that thought in mind, how shall we now live? Are you preparing for usefulness in those days? Dear Christian, in those days, we will finally see the experience of what real human flourishing will actually look like. And you'll have a hand in it. Just imagine with me for a moment, society and culture and business and technology, productivity and equity and justice and the government will rest on Jesus' shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David. That is an earthly throne in Jerusalem and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. That is the government that you'll be a part of for a thousand years. And as we survey the rest of Scripture, Scripture perhaps could fill this out even more for us. It seems the government will not be the only thing that is radically different in the millennial kingdom. According to Zechariah 14 verse 4, the geography and the topography of the earth will be different. And that day is Jesus, when he comes, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. And in that day, living waters, Zechariah records, will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea, another half towards the western sea. It will be in the summer as well as in the winter. The weather might be a little bit different, and, and, and the Lord will be king over all the earth, Zechariah records. And in that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. And all the land will be changed into a plain from Giba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem, but Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site, the holy city on the holy hill from where Christ will reign upon the earth. You picture it, Zechariah 14, verses 16 through 19, nations that don't worship Christ in that day, in that kingdom, will experience curses and drought and plagues. According to the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 65, verse 20, the average lifespan of men, perhaps in those days, will be prolonged. No, no longer will there be an, in, an infant who lives but a few days or an old man who does not live out his days for the youth will die at the age of 100. That'll be young. Some of you are encouraged by that. <laughs> the one who does not reach the age of 100 will be thought accursed. According to Revelation 20 verse 8, people will have repopulated the entire globe so that John can say after a thousand years is up, there are nations which are in the four corners of the earth during this time. I mean, I think some have asked, well, where did those people come from? The text doesn't tell us explicitly, but it would make sense that those who belong to Christ, who aren't martyred, think about this, during the great tribulation, but are preserved through the battle of Armageddon, and enter into the millennial kingdom won't have their glorified bodies yet and will still be procreating during the thousand-year period. 
That's where they'll they'll come from. And with the extended lifespan, it's not hard to imagine just how quickly that would happen. According to Isaiah 11, verses 6 through 10, even the animal world will be fundamentally different. And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf, and the lion, and the fatling together, and the little boy will lead them. Also, the cow and the bear will graze. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play, listen to this, by the hole of the cobra. No way my son's doing that right now. The weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den, and they will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Listen, what a glorious kingdom that will be. An earthly kingdom of Christ for a thousand years. No Satan and ruled with the saints. In the millennial kingdom, God will have effectively fulfilled all of his land promises given to his people in the Old Testament, as well as all of the promises of a global messianic government rule on the throne of David from the city of Jerusalem. Which leads us finally to the last section here concerning the millennial kingdom, the end. The end. You say, how could it get any better? Well, it it does. It will. We have to wait to chapter 21, but there's, there are some other things that God is doing through all of this. Look, he does not operate like we do. Aren't you thankful for that, that his ways are higher than ours? You know, like for me, I would have just incarcerated Satan and left him there and then went straight from prison into the lake of fire. God doesn't do that. Notice. The end of the millennium, verses 7 through 10. When the thousand years were completed, again, implying there was a purpose in this time to be accomplished, something to be fulfilled, Satan will be released from his prison. And he will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. What? And the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints of the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, and again, if you're anything like me, you're, you're, you're probably asking the question, why in the world is Satan released again? Why, why does God do that? Why did God not just take him from the abyss and just dump him in the lake of fire? That, that's, that, that's what we would have done. But notice, John here watches as Satan is allowed one final futile opportunity on parole to deceive the nations that have been replenished during the millennium and to take back, essentially is what he's after, his rule over the world as God over this world, as ruler of this age. He's been stripped of that title and he wants it back. He hates God I mean, that is, this is insanity, isn't it? 
Think, think about what, what is going on in the mind of Satan. You've just been in prison for a thousand years. You know what's coming, and still, how wicked and how hard-hearted can a creature become? But listen, this is who Satan is. It's who he is. He might dress himself up as an angel of light, but be not deceived, Christian. This is Satan. He is evil to the core. He hates God. He'll stop at nothing to have you as well. And shockingly, for about one and a half verses, notice it actually looks like he might have a chance. (laughs) He's able to gather an army here in verse 8 that John describes as the number of them is like the sand of the seashore. Again, where are these people coming from? Well, these are the descendants of through all the thousand years of all those tribulation saints who survived Armageddon and entered the millennial kingdom without the resurrection bodies, right? It it makes sense that all of their children would still be born with a sin nature during those thousand years under the ripe conditions of what the world has become. And Satan is somehow able to assemble them for war in one final drastic last-ditch effort at rebellion to overthrow God where he reigns at Jerusalem. Notice verse 9. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth. You remember um, we read earlier in, uh, I think it was Zechariah, where the topography has changed. Everything's flattened out and Jerusalem is on a hill. So here they are, you just picture all these little ants being gathered around the plain. They came up on the broad plain of the earth, surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. Again, why why does God allow this? Why, Why does he plan for it to unfold this way? I don't know why. Because the Bible doesn't really tell us, but I do know that somehow in the infinite wisdom and counsel of Almighty God, it apparently brings Christ more glory in the end, or he wouldn't have done it this way, right? Somehow, it will bring God more glory to allow Satan one final crack at it after the earth has experienced the thousand years of the perfect, righteous reign of Christ. And listen, isn't it amazing that even after that thousand-year reign of perfect, righteous Christ, the unbelieving human heart will still find any excuse to rebel against its creator and king. Oh, the sinfulness of sin. You know, this teaches us, just by way of implication here, it's, it's not the environment that's the problem. I mean, this of all passages should teach us that, right? It's not the environment that's the issue. It's not even satanic influence that's our ultimate problem. That's been off the earth for a thousand years. Even in the millennial kingdom, though, you will have masses. And, and, and perhaps this is shocking, but it is true. You will have masses of outwardly conforming unbelievers who will feign worship and allegiance to Christ whose true colors will be shown once Satan is released from the abyss for a short time. Now, how sobering is that? 
the sinfulness of sin, the deception and corruption. And I think this is God's way of putting his final exclamation point on it to say, and that expression is snuffed out in an instant. Notice this time, God will crush evil once and for all. Look at what happens next. The end of verse 9 and into verse 10. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And just like that, it is over. And this time there's no battle. There's only divine judgment from above. The host of unbelievers are consumed. And Satan is finally cast into eternal hell where he belongs. By the way, did you notice, just a side note, for those who try to argue that this lake of fire means simply going out of existence, notice how the beast and the false prophet are still there after a thousand years. They were put there back in chapter 19. They're still there. This confirms to us what Jesus taught as well about hell, Matthew 25, verse 41, where he called it the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This is Satan's final stop. This is where he ends. This is where he loses. Christian, he does lose. I know it doesn't look like it sometimes. In the world today, you look out and you see what's going on. I know it doesn't look like it. But that's why John writes this. Look, and before we get to the new heavens, the new earth in chapter 21, next week, we'll, we'll look at the, the final piece of God's dealing with the wicked in the great white throne judgment. But dear friend, be, be encouraged. Be, be encouraged this evening. Satan doesn't win. God will crush him under his feet just as he promised. So do not fear. Do not fear. Do you fear what Satan can do to you? The body he may kill. God's truth abideth still. And Christ's kingdom is forever. And one day, we know now, you will be in it. And not only will you be in it, you will reign with him. And you will see how the roles will be reversed The one who put you in prison for your faith will himself be in prison. The one who sought to put you to death will himself experience the second death. Christian, be encouraged. God wins. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this tremendous text. We pray that there has been a measure of clarity in it that you would not only convict us, but really what this text was intended to do that you would strengthen us, that you would help us to stand firm in even whatever it is that we would face today. Father, the the devil's roar is, is so often intimidating to us. We are weak in faith, 
We need you. Father, strengthen our convictions by this passage. Cause our minds always to run and to remember uh, to this text that there is ultimately nothing that evil can do. If we're in Christ, we're more than conquerors. Nothing can separate us from your love in the gospel. Father, we pray for any in here who perhaps don't know this love and will not find themselves here someday, that they would rather be in what we're going to look at next time. They will, Lord, that you might convict them, that you might show them, even from this very chapter, that someday they, they, they will not escape. They, 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 they will stand before you and be judged. Father, be merciful. Draw them to yourself now that they might share in the company of the redeemed and this great promise that you've given to us and that we've just seen in these first 10 verses. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.